Welcome back to Brain Buzz. I'm your host, Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we are joined by Rachel. Rachel, welcome. Hello. Thanks for having me here today. <laughs> Absolutely. No, we, we're really excited. We've been uh, talking before we started today just about uh, how fascinating your work is and, and sort of Drake and I have been gushing about it. So we're really excited to get into it today. Um, Rachel Benjamin is, is her name. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe we give her her last name as yeah, well. Yeah. Uh, it's nice to have you, Rachel. Uh, and so the way that you described your work to us is that you like studying people when they're in situations that make them feel uncomfortable. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so discomfort, um, I guess, more um, broadly would be uh, times when you feel like you kind of lack understanding of your environment and the people around you. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have this very broad sort of like umbrella framework that we work with that encapsulates a lot of like social situations, cognitive kind of like discrepancies. Um, so if you can just think of like times when you've been uncertain about what's going on in your environment, um, I work with a general model that's supposed to uh, describe people's responses mm-hmm. in those situations. In any situation of uncertainty. Yeah, yeah. So I think the goal was more or less, and this kind of predates me a little bit. Um, <laughs> my supervisor and a collaborator, Travis Prue, came up with something called the meaning maintenance model. Mm-hmm. And they just kind of noticed all of these disparate lines of research in psychology, um, all kind of uh, centering upon the experience of not knowing, um, being unsure, mm-hmm. uh, and then this sort of compensatory response that people have in situations where they're unsure. So we noticed that people uh, very fluidly kind of uh, seek to reestablish a sense of understanding. Right. So when you feel like you don't understand who you are... Like all the time, yeah. <laughs> <all> the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, even for small reasons, like you find yourself uh, in a situation where you drink a cup of coffee and find out you put salt in it instead of sugar, uh, theoretically, what you might do in order to reestablish a sense of meaning is become committed to some other kind of meaning framework. Like, at least I'm a good Christian or something like that. <laughs> it's a good thing I, didn't put, I put salt in my coffee. <laughs> I get, it makes sense, though. It's like you're trying to compensate in another part of your life that's yeah. not necessarily directed to. Exactly. And the theory is that people have this kind of like very generalized desire to understand and to know things. Hmm. Um, and anything that sort of bolsters your ability to understand and to know hmm. should be enough to get rid of the kind of negative anxiety of not knowing. Right. Yeah. So in situations where people feel uncomfortable, they try their best to feel comfortable again. Yeah. That makes Perfect. sense. It's like I, I find that uh, whenever I'm uncomfortable or uncertain in certain situations, I try and find... Uh, other areas in my life that I, I am comfortable in and confident in. And I think that's kind of what you're getting at as well, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And even it goes all the way back to kind of like old school psychology, you know, mm-hmm. like Leon Festinger's cognitive dissonance theory. Mm-hmm. In like 1957, um, I don't know if our listener, your listeners. <laughs> They're listening. <laughs> oh, yeah. You. Okay. They're, yeah. Your yeah. Listeners. They're our listeners. My <laughs> listeners. Part of the show. Yeah. <laughs> my listeners, if they're a fan, I guess, of 1960s psychology, mm-hmm. um, would know or would not know that there's just sort of like this very seminal theory about how people kind of like uh, seek to maintain consistency between their beliefs, attitudes and behaviors. Mm -hmm. So this guy in the 60s did all these studies where he had people um, like do a really boring task and then explain to someone else how exciting it was Mm -hmm. and then found that they explained back to themselves that in fact they didn't find the task boring at all. Yeah. It was something along the lines of like turning pegs one at a time for an hour. Um, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> but what's interesting about that is it sort of implies that people have this kind of like desire for a coherent narrative structure about themselves. Yeah. So when they do something that doesn't make sense to themselves, they find ways to make sense of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that kind of laid the groundwork for a lot of the work that's been going on since. Mm-hmm. And I think it kind of crops up in various ways across psychology and especially social psychology. Yeah. Um, people rationalize their decisions. That's also a big line of research is rationalization. Mm-hmm. Uh, you do something strange and then you explain to yourself why, in fact, it was not strange. Right. Or you find yourself in a situation that you're not enjoying. Uh, you explain to yourself why, in fact, this is an okay situation. Mm-hmm. Um, it comes up in politics quite a bit. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Yeah. How you sell yourself to the devil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, uh, what are you, you going to teach us today? What are we going to learn about in this episode? Uh, In this episode, I'm going to teach you a little bit about scary-looking robots. Why are they so scary? Um, We don't know yet, but we have an idea of why. 
Uh, we'll also be talking about the experience of pain and a few other um, lessons like what we mean by meaning, what we mean by schemas and violated expectations. Um, and then all of these will come together somehow. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. I, I, I know I'm excited to kind of figure out how we're all going to get back to that that point. So I, that, that's really exciting to me. Um, before we dive into that, though, um, are there any terms, maybe like schemas, uh, violated meaning, stuff like that, that we need that we should be uh, defining so that we're on the same page when we're talking about this? Yes, um, we talk about meaning in a very specific kind of way. In psychology, you could be talking about meaning in life or just sort of like meaning in your everyday experiences. Right. What is the meaning of life? Yeah. Whereas, we don't do that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. I, I don't go into that too often. You can do no. that in an hour. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. That's um, a show in, unto itself. Yeah. And it's also associated with a lot of kind of positive, positive psychology, mm -hmm. um, which I definitely don't have anything to do with <laughs> happiness and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> satisfaction. Ugh. Um, <laughs> no, this is more narrowly about how people maintain meaningful relations between objects and events in the world. So just um, how you make sense of like a coffee cup that's sitting in front of me, how you make sense of anything you're seeing or doing. Um, anything you're perceiving in the social or physical world. So meaning in sort of like a low-level cognitive kind of way is the way we like to talk about it. But then it could also be expanded a little bit to sort of um, meaningful interactions with others and with, yeah, the cognitive social environment. Um, and schemas are ideas that you have ahead of time about how certain things work. Um, so I would say that when there is a breakdown in your schemas, there's also a lack of meaning. And again, these are all sort of very specific to the way people in my lab talk about meaning and schemas. I've always been like fascinated by schemas and what they represent and how they represent things. And, and I think that's a really interesting, um, really interesting way of representing uh, information in the world. Uh, you also mentioned violated expectations. Is there anything that we need to know there? Or is that is that term pretty much what we would think it would be? That, that one's quite self-explanatory, I would say. Um, so when something happens that you don't expect it would happen that way, your expectations of that event are violated. They all kind of, I use words like meaning threat and violated expectations uh, and breakdown and meaning sort of interchangeably. Um, and that's because I guess what we're trying to do is come up with a general way to talk about anything that sort of goes against your everyday sort of expectations of the world. Um, that's the goal of the model that we work with. We talk about um, even Freud's like the uncanny, the familiar, unfamiliar, the unfamiliar, familiar. Mm -hmm. What makes it kind of unique is that we're not talking about um, things that you don't have a schema for at all. We're talking about things that you have some sense of how it should go. And then it kind of diverts and goes in a different direction. And that's a very unique kind of experience because rather than being able to dismiss something as unknown, you have to deal with the fact that you have to update all of your knowledge of the world, yeah. which is a lot more burdensome mm -hmm. and stressful for people. And depending on certain sort of like individual variables, like how comfortable are you with the unknown and how comfortable are you with contradiction, mm -hmm. uh, you might have kind of like a freak out. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. how we talk about it in the, in the biz <laughs> the scientific <laughs> yeah term a little bit of a freak out. <laughs> i i kind of i was trying to think of an example of of like a violated expectation i i kind of came up like with this kafka-esque kind of situation where you you like you go to work and every day it's the same thing you show up you sit down at your desk and you do your job from hour a until hour b and then you go home and i was like oh, wouldn't it be weird if you like showed up and you have a totally different job and just nobody told you you're mm -hmm. just like oh you're not working here in this <laughs> department anymore you're you're upstairs like i don't know sweeping yeah. floors suddenly when you were an accountant for a long yeah. time like just completely you're like what this is a complete violation of what i would expect yeah, I don't yeah. Know, kafka just no that's mind. true and like this uh whole line of research kind of has its roots in existential philosophy so that's <laughs> just a really good impulse that you had and um yeah, I think we've even used, like, Kafka stories as stimuli in some studies. Oh, no way. Yeah. There's one called The Imperial Messenger. I don't know if it's Kafka, but it's, uh, exist I think it is Kafka. 
And it's just the story of um, a messenger who's supposed to bring you a message, you the reader, mm -hmm. from the emperor. And he has this message he's supposed to deliver to you. And he's wading through just sort of like seas and seas of people in this palace while the emperor is laying on his deathbed and the emperor is going to die. And the end of the brief story, the short story is, uh, and then he forever and ever was trying to push past all of these crowds of people while you await this message and the emperor is on his deathbed. And it's just very unsettling because there's no conclusion to the story and there's no point to the story and there's no reason why an emperor would try to talk to you. Um... And stuff like that because you know what an emperor is and you know what a message is and you know what your expectations of messengers are uh, are especially difficult to listen to because what's happening is your expectations are being violated. Yeah, that's so interesting. I, I find that uh, the more you talk about uncertainty and this like uh, this, this, the response of freaking out, uh, it reminds I'm a, I'm a horror buff. So I, <laughs> I, I know that as a person that likes to watch horror movies, that's kind of what really good horror movies do is they cause the the viewer to have this uncertainty about what's going to happen or what what should happen and then whenever it doesn't happen or it, or it's left up in the air uh there's a really unsettling feeling that that kind of takes over the viewer and i think that's a beautiful way of kind of using that uncertainty to arouse an audience right in a sense. or freak them edge. out <laughs> so that's why some people probably hate those, those kind of movies because it does freak them out or put them on the edge and they don't like that uncertainty but some might thrive on that or might enjoy it more I guess yeah I think that there are probably people out there I like horror movies I don't mm. know if I like weird narrative structures I tend to get very frustrated <laughs> right that's fair <laughs> in that sense I think I'm doing some me search anytime I have to read like some Kafka I go like ugh, I hate this so much yeah that's how you know it works <laughs> yeah exactly yeah it's so, really cool so one thing that you you kind of brought up was pain and I know that when when I think about pain I, I typically think of physical pain but you know is there a pain associated with with this violation are we experiencing some sort of pain yeah, you can think well. So this is actually a controversial issue in the literature. Ah, fantastic. I love it. Yeah. Controversy. The controversy is that um, there's one researcher who's very adamant that pain in sort of like a social way and pain in a physical way are kind of, I mean, not isomorphic, but like similar in ways that other people might not say they're similar. So they both share this element of being uncomfortable mm -hmm. and distressing and threatening. Right. Um, and it's arguable whether they also share this element of being quote unquote painful. And I almost kind of don't know if I have the right sort of expertise mm -hmm. to get into That's this, okay. but I also know that I wrote my master's thesis about it, so I should at least try. <laughs> um, but uh, things, I mean, so you're willing to say things like my feelings hurt. Right. Um, you talk about sort of like existential pain and yeah. even psychic pain, I guess, is applied more broadly to things that have to do with like suicidal ideation and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So it's pretty clear that we're all willing to extend pain words to social situations and other kind of um, identity related situations. Right. Um, and there's also some neural overlap in terms of how we process things that are physically painful and things that would be psychologically painful. Mm -hmm. Like, there's some evidence that um, the salience network or sort of like the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex and anterior insula, no one really cares. Um, <laughs> but there's some evidence that pain activates that particular area, as does social rejection and other experiences like arguably um, violated expectations. There's some evidence that that whole network is also activated by violated expectations, mm -hmm. um, which is sort of where we come in. <laughs> right, right. The violated expectations people. Yeah. But basically, regardless of whether it hurts or is simply another source of distress, um, it's the kind of thing where you experience kind of like a cyclical sort of relationship between pain in the physical sense and pain in sort of like the social sense mm -hmm. in that uh, if you are hurt in one way, you're more likely to feel or be more sensitive to the other kind of hurt. Right. Uh, one other way in which people kind of cross that line or... or conflate the two things maybe is a better way of saying it is somebody broke your heart right yeah. <laughs> your heart doesn't really break but it's associating sort of a physical pain like if you know your heart is a physical entity with 
that social component, that emotional component, your heart can actually split. <laughs> I don't think that's what they're talking about. With no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> Dissected heart. It's, it's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, so something that I'm like, I'm really interested in and just as researchers, when we're trying, we're talking about pain and I, I the reason I imagine why you're like, I'm, I shouldn't probably be talking about this, even though I did my master's on it. There's <laughs> so much work on pain and, and how we define pain and how we measure pain. But to my understanding, and, and there's different models and different approaches, like the biomedical model and the biopsychosocial model that uh, are basically saying that it's a, it's strictly a biological marker. And this is something that is only measured through biological means and then when you take a biopsychosocial approach you have to take into account that your social environment can impact your pain the intensity of the pain uh your biological obviously has an impact like if you're being cut or burnt that should be <laughs> biologically hurting you mm -hmm. uh but there's also a psychological aspect of it and how you uh attend to that pain or how you as an individual uh determine how much pain you're in and so things like pain catastrophization is something that, that mm -hmm. my lab look, looks into as well which is a really interesting topic where you're talking about how painful something is to others and you're, you're catastrophizing this pain and, and usually individuals that are higher in this pain catastrophization or talking to people and saying like wow i'm in a lot of pain right now uh that actually can have effects on the the later the the reports of their pain later on uh, days later or 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 uh different times in that day so it's really interesting and also the way that the individuals are talking to respond to them can also impact whether or not their pain goes down or up right. uh, later on which is really cool so it, it, there's 100 percent a social like if you're taking this biopsychosocial approach which i do <laughs> and i think a lot more people are beginning to really appreciate the impact that psychological and social factors have on pain uh it, there there's a huge huge area of research within social pain that I'm really just fascinated by and, and you talking about it gets me really excited. <laughs> yeah, it is really cool. And I think that you mean like even if you're not willing to take the strong stance that they're the same thing. Right. Or that they're processed in the brain in exactly the same way, mm -hmm. which is a strong stance that I don't think anyone's necessarily taking. Yeah. Yeah. Very few. <laughs> yeah. But you know how people kind of like fight by strong, straw manning. Yeah, exactly. Like, you said this, whereas the truth is actually not that. And they yeah. said, we never said that. <laughs> so, but yeah, there's clearly a lot of overlap. I think that it'll probably come down to um, a little bit to do with the salience and threat of both social and physical mm -hmm. kind of sources of pain would be a source of overlap. And another one is probably having to do with kind of like chronic stress and anxiety. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a ton to speak to that. Yeah. You, you know, having like a long-term partner is one of the best predictors of longevity. Mm -hmm. We thought it was eating well. It was really just sort of like <laughs> getting married. Yeah. Um, <laughs> having a healthy social yeah. relationship with someone. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then there are also differences in how people communicate about pain. And I have a bit of evidence that there it's correlated with the way you communicate about uh, social situations and uncertainty specifically. Mm -hmm. So we found that people who are more kind of uncertainty averse are also more likely to pain catastrophize and to, if you ask them on any given day, report a little bit more pain. Right. Yeah. And That's I'm working on some stuff right now where we're putting people in pain after we've made them feel weird. We're not showing them Kafka, but we're showing them an abstract kind of David Lynch video. Okay. People are dressed up in bunny suits and they're yeah. exchanging weird dialogue. <laughs> okay. And then after that, we're putting their arms in ice water and seeing if that affects the amount of time they're willing to immerse their arms in ice water. Right. Hopefully finding at the end of all of this that um, when you are uncertain, you're also more sensitive to physical pain. Yeah. Interesting. That you you kind of jumped the gun because i mean that was like what we were gonna oh, <laughs> on the sorry. research but that's great you just <laughs> no, you just good. described your research really succinctly it was perfect rachel when you say salience do you mean um the ability of of something to draw our attention so that we we focus on it or or is there something more to it that we need to know uh that's more or less it um also things that would be perhaps kind of like urgent i would say okay yeah as opposed to things that you can kind of think about in sort of like a default mode kind of way right okay so it's, it's sort of a combination of it being both uh noticeable important to you in terms of this is an important piece of information that i need to be able to gather from my external world as it was right um th is that a little bit closer then to maybe how we how we think about salience going forward yeah that that would be that's good it also sort of encapsulates a lot of uh the other kind of like 
violated expectations and uh, violated schema explanations we're giving here. So, mm -hmm. yeah, salience, as in things that are uh, noteworthy, perhaps in an immediate kind of way. Right, okay. <laughs> so a, a synonym of salience is like importance, but it doesn't really encapsulate what we're getting at fully. Yeah. Because it, it's something that needs attention, right? And that's really important. Yeah, salience urgency. Is, a, is a tricky word in, in attentional work. I'll geek out for just a moment. Because it, it can have such a specific meaning to people as we kind of alluded to earlier or talked about yeah. earlier with like schemas you know using that word has a very particular meaning to one individual but another researcher might understand it slightly differently and, and i think salience kind yeah. of suffers that same that same fate and that um this is probably a situation where i'm trying to talk about neural stuff whereas i'm a, a lowly social psychology researcher <laughs> i always have that problem too because i'm like i don't know it happens in the brain. Yeah. Any, salience is probably whatever you say salience is. <laughs> <laughs> but we're starting to kind of become a little bit more aware that that might be what we've been talking about all along. Right. You know how different um, areas don't talk to each other until oh, yeah. it's too late. Oh, yes. <laughs> I thought they loved to talk to each other and share ideas. <laughs> yeah, that's a common issue within, within all research, I think, is just that one area gets really focused on their area and they don't talk to other areas and even though they might be looking at the same thing just calling it a million different things well it's really interesting because i i'm going to a conference next week and we're talking about exercise stuff and like i'm the only psych person there mm -hmm. and i study exercise psychology and yeah. cognition and yet a ton of like i read the abstracts yesterday and a ton of them are about like more or less the kind of work that i do and I've never heard of these people. They, they're all at UBC. They're all in mm -hmm. faculty of medicine, physiology, kinesiology, elsewhere. And so imagine that, but within a single department too, right? Yeah, you know, it happens. Like, yeah, it's, it's something that's constant. And that's why, I mean, that's why science communication is so important. That's what we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. To get people to start using the same terminology or, or using, they may have been using the same term, but in two different ways, right? And it's, and being able to say, okay, actually, I see why you're using that. And then maybe we can change the word or do something about it. Um, so... I have a question then, Rachel, uh, just to kind of move us forward on something that I've been curious about. When we're talking about um, robots, as we said earlier, one thing that I think is really fascinating is that, uh, or one thing that I'd be interested to get your take on at least is, uh, to me, part of the thing that we don't like about them is that they violate in many ways our expectations of humans, but also all our salience cues that we use about an individual, or at least many of them, aren't there in a robot does that make sense yeah they will not make eye contact yeah. they will <laughs> have strange speech patterns right yeah and so some of the things that that we would typically attend to as being sort of products of being human are absent so those salient features that we that we closely associate with uh an individual are in some ways absent in robots yeah it, I think that's, or, or it, other <laughs> zombies or whatever else. Yeah, things that are uncanny, which might be worth defining at this point. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> this line of research, uh, RE, threats to meaning, violated expectations, brought us to a place where we wanted to look at uncanniness. Um, as mentioned earlier, Freud used to talk about uncanniness, and he would call it... Uh, well, unheimlich is what he would call it. <laughs> that was probably perfect pronunciation. Yeah, <laughs> no, nailed it. <laughs> um, and that translates to the familiar unfamiliar. So if you can imagine, as you're saying, seeing a human face, but then seeing it do very robot-y kinds of things, that would be a familiar thing behaving in a very unfamiliar way. Right. So it wasn't that much of a leap for us to go from talking about Kafka-esque short stories mm -hmm. and people's freak out temper tantrums that they have afterwards yeah. to talking about uncanniness uh, uh, as a familiar, unfamiliar kind of object. And people have been using the word uncanny to talk about the uncanny valley in robots and animation. Um, and that's, as you're mentioning, an experience of seeing something that looks quite human but then also diverts away from human form. Um, so uh, an illustration of this phenomenon is if you think of R2-D2 from Star Wars, he's very cute, right? Mm -hmm. He makes little bleep bloop noises. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, he has sort of like vaguely human qualities, but not so human. C-3PO, on the other hand, is slightly less adorable, but you right. might still find him charming. Right. Um, and then an android, like the one who, there's one that recently gained uh, citizenship in Saudi Arabia. I think her name is, and I don't remember what her name is. Really? Sophia. Sophia. <laughs> um, so Sophia, on the other hand, uh, an uncanny android who just got citizenship in Saudi Arabia, speaks in sort of like a halting kind of tone, um, makes strange facial expressions, uh, is 100% less charming than R2-D2. <laughs> um, you start to enter a zone called the Uncanny Valley. And if you can picture plotting all of these robots mm -hmm. um, on a plot where let's say like the x-axis is liking, or sorry, the x-axis is humanness mm -hmm. and the y-axis is liking, all of a sudden you see a dip, like a valley, around the point where things become almost human, but not quite. Right. That's where it gets the term, the uncanny valley. Okay, because it dips. The, the less human, the better. And then yeah. as soon as it gets closer to human, it gets really low. Like People start to not like it as much. And then when it's an actual human, they're, they're back to liking it. Right, yeah. So R2-D2, people love R2-D2, vaguely human. Yeah. C-3PO, they're like, I'm not so sure about C-3PO, <laughs> a little bit more human. And then Sophia, creepy robot, mm -hmm. all of a sudden, I don't like this thing at all. Yeah. Um, and then you get closer to human, so you, you cross the valley. Yeah. All of a sudden, you're like, oh, it's just my friend Joe. I love Joe. Yeah. Um, he's a normal person. You like him again. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, uh, with this robot work and, and sort of this uncanny valley work, where are we with the research? Like, what do we know so far? Um, people have been speculating for a while about why this is happening. Um, issues with categorizing these objects has come up in the past. People have proposed that because we have difficulty deciding whether they're human or non-human, uh, we're not so sure what to do with them. Um, there's also a line of work where they're suggesting that these robots remind you of death and the fact that you're going to die someday. Which belongs to a literature that actually has a lot of overlap with what we're doing in our lab because they make similar predictions like being reminded of your mortality causes you to have a freak out uh, and then find something else to take comfort in like being a good Christian being a good person that kind right. of thing. So that model predicts almost exactly what we predict but rather than saying these things are bothersome. They're saying these things remind you that you're going to die, mm -hmm. which is very plausible because these are sort of like walking scary corpses and like zombies will <laughs> go into the, the same area of the uncanny valley as Sophia the weird robot does. <laughs> um, and these are things that theoretically with proper maintenance could live forever. Right. Right. Like, a, you know, if a robot's well maintained, it could theoretically exist indefinitely. Yeah. Longer than us. Well, certainly longer than us. I think that would also be a, a little bit challenging to come to terms with. Like, the oh. stupid looking robot's going to outlive me. <laughs> like, yeah. That would be a bit of a challenge, too. And that would certainly cue my, my sense of mortality. Yeah. They might even be upsetting, just as you're saying, because they have the potential of outliving us and taking all of our jobs, and <laughs> <laughs> destroying all humans, right. et cetera. <laughs> so, so, with the research on uncanniness and, and robots, how does that kind of link towards the research that you're talking about with like the social pain and uh, the pain sense or sensitivity of pain. So the connection mm -hmm. um, is that both things are upsetting. Mm -hmm. And I think that tends to be the common thread that underlies all of this. Um, and we take a very loose position to the upsetting. Um, social rejection is upsetting. Robots are upsetting. Uh, Kafka stories are upsetting. Anything that sort of like causes you to reevaluate your understanding of the world in a distressing kind of way uh, is upsetting. Right. And for our purposes, it's upsetting in roughly the same way in that you in your very sort of like uh, low level programming decide that you need to fix whatever problem is going on and you're going to find the simplest solution to do that. Right now with the uncanny work, we're looking at how people respond to uncanny robots, whether as one might speculate they become more interested in who they are as a person, sort of like bolstering their worldviews to mm -hmm. become more robust to this strange phenomenon that's going on. And we would call the strange phenomenon, uh, or at least we would posit that that has a lot to do with this sort of like 
distressing kind of like pain experience that you have uh, in other social situations. Right. Okay. So the link between this uncomfortableness with the robots and, and the basically this uncanny valley where you're not sure what's going on. It's, it's, it's not, it's unsettling. Uh, you, you think that there are, you're looking for a link between how people uh, or the pain that they're, or the social pain that they're experiencing in a sense. Yeah. Well, yeah. How do you go? Sorry. How do you go about like, how's, how's the study look and what are your expectations or what are you guys finding? I guess. So I guess the link, it's uh, more obvious from my end because Mm -hmm. I use the same creepy videos to creep people out, to cause them to experience pain as I do to creep them out and then compare that to the degree of creep out they get from a robot. Right. So we're trying to kind of bridge the experience of uh, meaninglessness that you get from everyday kind of violations Mm -hmm. with the experience of meaningless and distress you get from interacting with an uncanny android or a creepy robot yeah uh and both of those things we're hoping make people more sensitive to pain Mm -hmm. um i'm in the middle of writing a review paper about the experience of pain which is proving more and more difficult because everyone has their two cents yeah (laughs) absolutely but there's a ton out there to suggest that being unemployed hurts being uh, rejected socially hurts moving to a new country hurts uh, mm-hmm. and it hurts in the sense that it'll make them more sensitive to physical pain. Right. So more likely to experience hurt. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting that it can impact your physical pain or your sensitivity to physical pain. Uh, and when people say it hurts to hurts to be alone or it hurts whenever I don't have anybody to talk to, they might actually not be completely like making things up here. They might actually be honest when they say I, I'm, I'm hurting more often mm-hmm. because of it or I'm feeling like I'm hurting more because I'm in I'm alone and I don't have anybody to talk to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So all of these things are supposed to hurt. Yeah. <laughs> Robots are supposed to hurt. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really scary world. Yeah. Where everything hurts. Everything hurts. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, perhaps not in the literal sense. I think it's important mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. use that as a qualifier. But um, I guess the fact that what we're doing is so broad in general makes mm-hmm. it so that our approach to things like pain are very broad in general. Mm-hmm. So we're just trying to put forth this general hypothesis that people like to be secure mm-hmm. and safe yeah. and feel comfortable in their social and physical environment. Mm-hmm. And when things go wrong, uh, they want to do whatever it takes to fix that wrong thing. Right. It's, and it's interesting. So I think like, yeah, making that point that not... Be, just being alone or, or being in uncomfortable situations that won't you won't be feeling like like extreme pain but it, it can increase the sensitivity to pain or your reports of, of pain right which yeah. is really important like i mean that's still very important even though you're not feeling like a as soon as you're alone like you have a gut punch or anything like that but whenever you you're sick or you're you are hurting that it feels worse right uh, because of these things or it's been shown that the sensitivity is higher right yeah. Right. Yeah. Very cool. So what do you, have you found, have you found stuff with, with the the research on like uh, pain and like, what can you, what report, what results can you talk about? I guess is the question next. Um, I've had a lot of bad, I wouldn't even call it bad luck because sometimes (laughs) it's just because what you're studying is not actually a thing after all. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. I think that's an important qualifying (laughs) statement to make. Um, I have uh, some reason to believe that people buy more Tylenol at times when the political social environment is more uncertain. Mm -hmm. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. That's something that... What's the reason? Is because of this... You think like the reasoning is that because people are uncomfortable about what's happening politically, they're feeling more pain, so they need these painkillers? Right, yeah. So we use sort of like an uncertainty index that economists would use to just talk about the amount of times people express uncertainty in everyday life and sort in the newspaper. So mm-hmm. yeah, the index indexes uncertainty expressions in newspapers. Um, and as you can imagine, uh, there was sort of like a sharp increase around 2016. So <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> Don't know what's going on there. Um, and we also have a database tracking sales of sort of over-the-counter drugs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were really excited to find that Tylenol, which is purchased for the purpose of killing pain, um, is uh, purchase patterns are related to uncertainty expressions in the news. Um, one thing that we were sad to find is that cold medicine purchases are also related to all mm-hmm. of these things. 
Um, we were sad because we were excited to say that pain was definitely the mechanism. Right. It's exclusively pain. Right. Yeah. But it's right. probably more likely that there's like pain and illness and sickness and stress and things like that. Right. They're more stressed about the political aspects and the uncertainty within that, that they might also become, become sick. Right. Yeah. Once because stress is related to sickness. Yeah. yeah. One thing I'd love to add, um, I, I'll qualify this by saying I don't do this work, even though it has come out of my lab. My supervisor, Dr. Todd Handy, uh, they do work with this, uh, with Tylenol and mind wandering as well. And, mm. and one thing that they've found is that um, uh, that Tylenol seems to help uh, insulate people. So there, it actually prevents them from engaging or, or being able to engage attention in the outside world as effectively. Mm. So there, there's some maybe there's something there where it's it's like oh it's we're actually using Tylenol not only for its pain reducing effects but because it has this additional side effect of of insulating us from all, everything else that's going on around us um, mm. socially and culturally or whatever else it might be yeah that makes a lot of sense um and tylenol uh is largely mysterious in how it operates but right. one thing that it does do is it reduces activation in all of the areas associated with salience and threatened things like that um all not all of the areas a lot of the attention area. attention areas, areas yeah. yeah brains yeah. are complicated it's very hard. <laughs> <laughs> but um there's evidence that it gets rid of some of the bits that respond to pain as well as some of the bits that respond to social pain and there's evidence coming out of our lab and this is evidence that predates me but i would have uh i draw on and i pick up in my research mm -hmm. that taking a tylenol makes you less uh, reactive to uncertainty so some of the weird uh, anxiety-producing stimuli we showed people to make them feel like they don't, don't understand the world at all mm -hmm. becomes much less threatening when they've yeah. taken One thing the that would be really interesting to get from you, Rachel, is an idea as to, um, as to what this means for, for people. What, what, is, what is the implication of the research that, that you're doing? The robot stuff is interesting because at first I was thinking it would be kind of like a fun thing to figure out, sort of like selfishly for ourselves. Um, because we know that people don't like robots, but we don't really know why. And we have such a good framework already for understanding why people don't like things that bother them in an unexpected expectancy violation sort of way. We were like, this is probably a good example of that. But now just talking to everyone about how excited they are about VR and robots and yeah. how quick the future is coming. It's interesting to think that there will be more hurdles than the everyday person really considers. Mm -hmm. Um, and we need to have some way of developing kind of like a script for interacting with robots, which is another unexpected kind of consequence of having this whole new form of interaction. We but, don't really know what to do about them yet. What do you mean by script? So um, just as an example, you mentioned that Kafka stories remind yeah. you of uncertainty. Um but you also know that that's sort of his job. That's, right. that's what Kafka did. <laughs> yes. Um, if I tried to read you an abstract story and I told you that this aired on SNL last night or something like that, you'd go, what? Yeah. <laughs> and um, that would be sort of like contributing to the experience of uncertainty. Right, okay. But then once you have a context and a way to understand what's going on, um, it's just less potent as an experience. Okay. So if we have these uncanny robots walking around, but after a while, we go like, oh, they're robots. They're weird. All of a sudden, we're experiencing this very, like, palliative kind of response of, I understand what's going on. It's weird, but at least I know why it's weird. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So there's an acceptance that this will be weird. Yeah. And as a technology, I would think that, you know, like, back in the day when people were just starting to figure out telephones or something, for a while, it was bizarre. And they had a hard time talking on the phone. Yeah. And then after a while, they became more used to it, and they developed a script for it, and all of a sudden, it became part of daily life. Right. We seem to be kind of on the cusp of that, because everyone's talking. I don't know about, like, Alexa. I talk to Siri all the time. Yeah, I got, okay, Google over here, always oh. listening to me. <laughs> <laughs> Ever-present. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes, um, Siri surprises me, and I get a little confused and upset. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but the more I interact with Siri, the more I'll understand what she's about and right. it'll be less generally distressing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, such would be the case with these uncanny androids, uncanny robots. Mm -hmm. um, but what's also kind of interesting about this line of work is that we're not so sure if that's really the problem with them. I know that's where you jumped to immediately. Mm -hmm. There might be 
other uncertainties around them mm-hmm. like what they intend to do yeah. <laughs> with yeah. all of us yeah. what do you do with all this information yeah <laughs> are there certain people that are more likely to be weirded out by these things or is it just everybody is kind of weirded out on an equal playing field or is there is there anything that's really drive that you have found uh or the, in, within the research that shows that certain people are okay with weird stuff there's more a than others. There's a covariate we use all the time. So just sort of like uh, an individual difference that seems to pretty robustly predict who's going to be more freaked out and who's going to be less freaked out. Mm -hmm. And that just has to do with sort of like the need for closure, intolerance for uncertainty, desire for things to be as expected. Um, What's interesting is those are variables that tend to be more prevalent among people who are also kind of like politically conservative. Okay. Um. I think mm-hmm. I'm going to qualify that by saying I think. Yeah. I haven't looked into that in a while. Sure. Yeah. No, it's fine. Yeah. I and I, I, I fully like expected to be throwing you a curveball on that one. So it's just something that I'm interested in seeing. Like, certain people might be more okay with this uncertainty or these weird situations, and I'm wondering what would be driving that. And I think that's interesting. That you, it seems like certain people that are okay with things being open ended might that might there might be some personality variables as well within that. Like people that are more neurotic might be like less okay with that yeah neuroticism is something we include in a lot of these studies Mm -hmm. and we do have evidence that people who are higher in neuroticism are also uh less excited about uncertainties right so people that are lower in neuroticism might be more likely to be okay with that uncertainty yeah it gets a little abstract because you don't know if they uh think of themselves as open to uncertainties and if you cause them to think that in fact they're not that at all Mm -hmm. you might get just as much robust so it's like the degree to which they work into their self schema the fact that they're open to uncertainties would also kind of like ruin this whole phenomenon that we've been finding absolutely yeah 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 Mm -hmm. just so anybody that hasn't heard of neuroticism uh I think I've thrown it around way too many times in the, in the <laughs> I know you said it like a ton of times. Because neuroticism is generally something that is looked at whenever you're looking at personality. They, they use a big five personality traits and, and neuroticism is one of them. There's neuroticism. Ocean is the way to remember it, right? And I think we talked about this once, but it's, uh, it's generally people are more likely that are higher in neuroticism to have, uh, to be more moody, to experience such uh, feelings like anxiety, worry, fear, anger, frustration, envy, jealousy, guilt all these things depressed mood and loneliness those are things that are associated with neuroticism that personality type so it makes sense what rachel's been saying about like the fact that neuroticism might be playing a part in this on not being cool with uncertainty as much as people that are lower in that right yeah 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 thanks for elaborating on some (laughs) i'm missing some of the basics i've noticed because i jump into this from like a social psychology perspective Mm -hmm. but i'm like yes personality neuroticism (laughs) brains salience yeah <laughs> those are also relevant words and yeah i like that we're all <laughs> yeah it's, I, it's actually the beauty of all being from different areas with enough overlap between all of them because we can I, that's something i found actually recording all these episodes we've been able to say oh yeah and then like i'll jump in with like some cognitive definition and then mm-hmm. you know our guests will say something and then drake's like oh and from a health perspective here's what we're, you know yeah that's really cool and it's actually interesting to see we talked about earlier how the areas don't actually always talk and here's an opportunity for us to talk and share ideas and yeah it makes you think differently and and take different perspectives which is so important yeah Yeah. yeah. perfect well um thanks rachel for that great first half that was really informative i felt like i learned a lot and drake i'm sure you feel the same way uh we'll take a quick break and when we come back we'll get into some myths misconceptions and some cool facts that you might want to share with uh share with us and um until then Enjoy the song. Uh, Take a moment. Leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play. Uh, Hit us up on brainbuzzpodcast.com. Send us a tweet at brainbuzzpod. Uh, Like a post on our Instagram, also at brainbuzzpod. Uh, Or shoot us an email at brainbuzzpodcast at gmail.com. Anyways, we'll see you on the other side. Cheers. When your day is long yours alone When you're sure you've had enough of this life Hang on 
sometimes Sometimes everything is wrong Now it's time to sing along When your day is night oh. Welcome back, everyone. Um, I'm Rachel. You've been listening to my episode about pain and uncanniness and things that are bothersome. Hopefully this episode was not one of those things. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Excellent. Thanks, Rachel. Um, so one of the things that we'd like to talk about are some myths and misconceptions. Um, something that you've always kind of stumbled upon that uh, might be prevalent, but maybe not true. Do you have something like that that you might be able to share with us today? Uh, I know that this might not be a fun kick your feedback kind of topic, <laughs> yeah, but that's okay. we'll I know that fun. when when we were talking about this earlier, I made kind of like a big deal about small effects in psychology. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of the things that I've been talking about today aren't deterministic in the sense that if you walk up to someone and you show them all the stuff that we show them to make them respond in a certain way. They're not going to do it 100% of the time. And in fact, in this kind of work, they're probably going to do it like 5% of the time, (laughs) (laughs) something like that. Um, And that's kind of true of a lot of psychology research. And it's becoming like a bigger and bigger deal now because when you publish, you sort of make it seem a lot more causal than it really is. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what makes it so compelling. Right. Uh, whereas this stuff, I think, is kind of like intrinsically interesting that it happens at all. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where I wanted to situate all of it. So I guess the myth and misconception is that like you can use all of these as strategies in mm-hmm. your everyday life and expect them to work because yeah. they work. Whereas, in fact, it's not really like that. And I think it's important to be aware of, especially now, because the field of psychology, we're kind of like undergoing this like renovation where now we're not... Uh, we're using bigger sample sizes, we're expecting smaller effects, and we are just becoming a lot more consistent in our ability to estimate how often this happens mm-hmm. and under what circumstances it happens, um, which makes it a whole bunch less kind of like pop culture appealing mm-hmm. because we used to say things like, what's the best way to get people to listen to you? Stand up really straight and tall. And yeah. and then we find out that things don't replicate. Yeah. Power pose. <laughs> Power pose. Yeah. Oh, yeah. whoops. <laughs> it's, it's typical within our culture and within our Western society to be like, oh, this, this paper says this, so this is going to hold true for everybody, or this is this is the case. This is not how it actually is. Yeah. It's, one, it's one scenario, one, one sample of individuals uh, that might not represent everybody else or the same situation for the same type of people or people that are in the same area or same group. Yeah, yeah. So the usefulness is more or less to just kind of like establish a model for a thing that happens uh, sometimes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that's okay, I think, because if we were only studying things that happened 100% all of the time, we'd be saying things like, you get tired around midnight, you get hungry around like noon, mm-hmm. um, you get mad when someone punches you in the face, and mm-hmm. you're happy when they tell you that they love you, and, and then it just sort of becomes like kind of like, I don't know what it's called, like re- reductive. Re- yeah. Oh, uh, reductionistic view. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. Where, where it's the simplest answer, like when you, or it's like equates to the simplest answer. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that's a big deal, especially in social psychology right now, mm-hmm. because we are the group that tends to overpromise mm-hmm. um, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> so uh, it's important to qualify a lot of these statements that way, um, just for the sake of being responsible, but also for the sake of like scientific understanding. Anytime you kind of like hear about something 
um it's important to be skeptical and to acknowledge that it's all kind of probabilistic mm. i would think like even if we were talking about physics right now you'd have to take into account the fact that all of these mechanisms are probabilistic because the world is probabilistic and yeah. full of uncertainties and all we know for sure is that uh we know nothing kind of thing yeah exactly <laughs> stop stop thinking in absolutes i think is a big thing right like people are like there's one answer and this is what it is and this, it works for everybody it doesn't it doesn't work that way yeah. yeah and one like big takeaway from the topics i research is that people have a hard time with the concept of uncertainty mm -hmm. um because they want an absolute kind of answer people want to be certain but you're literally researching uncertainties <laughs> so this is <laughs> it's not gonna gonna work hand in hand here like you're trying to get uh people to think about what happened when what happens when they're uncertain and what to do when you're uncertain whenever you're talking about how uh in research we can't just say that this is one reason that this this works and that this applies for everybody it's important to say that like individuals that are looking at research the real thing that we want as researchers i think is to uh take this research like you said take it with a grain of salt but like also consider what it would do in your life or how it might impact your life think critically like so if for an example it's saying that uh people that are uncomfortable or uncertain in situations certain situations if they're more likely to experience pain think about what you feel and how you report pain after you experience something like uncertain or how does your experience possibly differ from someone else that has all these other things that are going on in their life like uh age might be playing a factor or gender or experiences life experiences things like that it's a really important as an individual to be like does this apply to me do, do i fit into this result instead of saying even, even if you don't fit in that result doesn't mean that that research is wrong by by all accounts right it just means that there's something else that we haven't yet accounted for yeah or you don't fit when like, yeah. you're not in the average and there's some yeah. reason why you're not in that average and, exactly. and that's something else to explore and that's what i think research is for is to to be like this is what we think's going on this is like a general trend and this and certain people don't fit in this that's why there's no 100% accurate research out there. Yeah. Like, there's no absolutes. There's yeah. no perfect model. Because people, people are complicated. Yeah. I think that's a really healthy approach to small effects. I know that a lot of people talk about the importance of effects. I think you should also just kind of like consider the importance for whom. Mm -hmm. And if something's not working all the time, uh, why? Rather than just sort of, ah, you know, <laughs> yeah. that it is what it is kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And, I, and that's one thing I don't like whenever people say like, oh, but there was a small effect, so it doesn't mean anything no that, that's not that's not true either <laughs> there may be a small no. effect but there's something going on that, yeah. that, that we want to explore there's all these other variables people live lives that are so unique and so different yeah. and there's so much substance to that that yeah. you can't discredit people's experiences and their and their genetics and all these other things yeah yeah like a small effect that people have argued is unimportant but is probably important is like stereotype threat mm -hmm. so just kind of like telling someone that they belong to a minority before they do a task like by the way, before you do this math, you're a woman, just so you know, uh, makes them worse at the math. Right. Um, people have argued that because it doesn't make them that much worse or like as much as the field seems to present. Yeah. Um, it's an unimportant finding when in reality, that's the kind of thing that probably affects people uh, all the time. Yeah. That they may not even be aware of. Yeah, or, yeah. or it's, even if it's sort of like a small detriment to their performance, it's Still a small a but important one. Yeah. Because at some point, all of these things come together and accumulate into things like a wage gap. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. yep. finding just sort of like small pieces of a puzzle that explains like humanity is all kind of important. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's a, it's a really good point. Yeah. One thing that you brought up earlier, and I, I'd just quickly like to get your thoughts on it, if you don't mind. Um, you mentioned me-search. And... I think it, I think that that's actually a really fascinating um, sort of turn of phrase that we use sometimes. Um, can you explain what me search is? Yeah. So um, I have always been drawn to topics like this, um, just sort of like personally, not even kind of intellectually, because mm -hmm. I find that I'm the sort of person who is very existentially uncertain all the time. Um, I've observed that a lot of other people in psychology are drawn to topics that relate to them. Um, so I think that that's also kind of unique to psychology in that a lot of people who, for example, study like cultures of bacteria in the stomach wouldn't open a presentation to their lab by saying, you know, I have a lot of these stomach cultures. <laughs> <laughs> right. um, so it's both kind of like a tool 
and also probably a little bit to our detriment because we are very excited about the results we find uh, and then we also get really excited about the models that we're putting forth mm-hmm. um, and that also can kind of make us closed off to doing all of the fancy things you guys were mentioning like looking at boundary conditions looking at how this operates across all of these different people yeah because um, i am probably on some kind of high end of the uncertainty aversion spectrum mm-hmm. in that i get very afraid of robots all the time <laughs> just sitting around thinking about it really bothers me mm-hmm. um and that's important to acknowledge too when you're doing something you're very interested in doing you have to find a way to also dissociate just a little bit yeah when you care so- about something so much that the findings really really matter yeah uh, you can <laughs> you can close yourself off and get these put these blinders on and just think about one thing right and you tend you can tend to ignore uh other really important facts or or theories that are going on around you that you just you just really want these answers for one thing right i think it's i think that there's it's such a double-edged sword because as you pointed out there certainly can be negative consequences but at the same time the other edge of that is that it you're impassioned you you and and you're not alone i think a lot of us are in this in sort of the same same area We, we we love part of why we're interested in the work is for our own personal curiosity and that that really i think helps spurs us to continue research even in the face of adversity or um you know things that we didn't expect or any of those sorts of situations they can really be cast aside when you're like no but I'm, i'm just this is something that i'm i'm so curious about i think that's a really interesting uh interesting thing to point out is mm-hmm. you know we, we're all driven by to some extent i think a little bit of me search like what's well, you find what you research interesting yeah, <laughs> yeah that's yeah. the hope right yeah definitely or you don't at least hate it <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah rachel you have something that's really unique to yourself and it's a really fun fact what is it that's special about you? I guess this is really special. The thing that makes me the most special <laughs> <laughs> is that I do not get brain freeze. I am immune to brain freeze. This is mind blowing to me. Yeah. Opposite of mind blowing. <laughs> My, well, yeah, mind normal okay. temperature. Yeah, mind normal temperature. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going on different spectrums here mind freezing, mind blowing. <laughs> so you've have you tested this like the limits of your ability to not get brain freezes there's been a bit of dispute about this (laughs) because apparently i eat ice cream very very slowly Oh, okay which is a confounding variable yes for all of you scientists out there that's a confound um and i don't i stay away from things like slurpees just because i don't see the appeal but i've also lived like 25 years of life Mm -hmm. um and i've never had a brain freeze before which I think must be some kind of statistical anomaly. Um, and for a while, I thought of this as kind of like my superpower. You right. know how oh, like... It's amazing, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. You like, change the world. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> drinking, uh, eating ice cream at a normal pace, but I could mm. eat it faster if I wanted to. Um, <laughs> but I looked it up at some point because it's just been a weird thing about me for so long. Mm. I was like, this is the one thing that I really have. And I Googled it and uh, the internet said, you know, about like 5% of people don't get brain freeze and all of a sudden i was going like oh (laughs) so it's me and like also probably a few million (laughs) (laughs) so what is the fun how do you get a brain freeze i'm I'm confused by the actual function of it i've had it multiple times uh it has to do with the sensitivity you've had it multiple times oh man i get it all the time whenever i I, I, so the thing is i'm like the opposite of you i eat things too fast because i get excited (laughs) especially when i we're talking about like frosties (laughs) like ice cream whatever whatever slurpees i just yeah always always drink them too fast hmm. so maybe you should just chug a frosty and we could see if you are the five percent i'll try it i think i have i've tested this a little bit right, in the yeah. past. you seem like you've looked into this so this isn't just yeah. something that you say in passing something that's yeah. been investigated. <laughs> yeah. but again i haven't had like a panel of judges telling me that that's the normal speed with which to drink <laughs> ice ice drinks um, right fair either way i think that i don't get it i think yeah. i would have noticed by now if i had it and yeah. it's sort of like being colorblind people are like look at this blue thing you're like i don't know what you're talking about yeah so you know it's the one thing where i feel like i'm really missing out on mm-hmm. something yeah so sorry so you were you oh, were yeah. to explain how, how, it, how, you, how, how it works. How it happens, yeah. right. So uh, people have um, nerves on the roof of their mouth, mm-hmm. obviously, and those are sensitive to some degree to temperature change. And the degree to which they are sensitive to temperature change uh, has to do with how bad a brain freeze you get. Okay. Um, 
I don't know why. Like, because the roof of your mouth uh, connects to your brain. Okay. Um, brains. <laughs> brains. Wow. Bodies. <laughs> so, uh, just really quickly looking, it seems one one theory is that that the receptors in your mouth and especially as well at the back of your throat, um, there are several arteries that run around along those those sort of pathways. And uh, while your brain doesn't have any um, pain receptors these this extra tissue and the the area around the arteries does and so when they're when they're constricting due to the cold they're they're that's what's causing the pain so it's the arteries then like contracting that's one that's one possible explanation interesting. see i didn't know there was debate on this that's so interesting but like why but then why like you have arteries <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So maybe wide. your just sensitivity is just yeah your pain receptors aren't as sensitive. you have a lot less like such a low or uh, a high threshold of pain sensitivity in your mouth interesting might be but i'm not there's nothing anywhere else like you'd think i would yeah. be not sensitive to pain right yeah in general maybe it's just a that low that location on your body that maybe the pain receptors <laughs> just decided not to yeah to develop as much or you just have a really high threshold that the rate at which you eat cold food or drink cold drinks may yeah. not be fast enough to shock the system. Yeah, maybe the, it'll hit like <laughs> critical mass sometime. Like I just need to find like five or six jugs. It's of- got to be so cold and so much <laughs> that it just overloads the system. Straight up ice water. Yeah. Oh, but I have a hubris. This is disappointing. I also have very sensitive teeth. So oh, no. it's like the pain is just elsewhere. But... Right. So your teeth feel the pain instead of your, your head. Yeah. Like, you know, when people bite into ice cream sandwiches, like without even being careful, you're supposed to like bite through the cookie and then kind of like bend the rest of it away. But sometimes they'll just kind of like chomp like um, people are savages. Yeah. <laughs> Savage. They don't have sensitive teeth. <laughs> yeah, what, what is wrong with you? <laughs> if you don't have sensitive teeth, it's not something you ever think about. Right. But like for people that have sensitive teeth, I'm the same way whenever I have cold drinks. Uh, my teeth got really sensitive. You know what's particularly bad for me is oranges, cold oranges, like oranges that have been in the fridge. Really? Holy shit! Yeah, sometimes it's just like the excruciating pain. Why, why put the oranges in the fridge then? Well, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, that's a good point. Why do I put the oranges in the fridge? He continues to put oranges in the fridge, <laughs> yeah. knowing they hurt him. Yeah, you, you see you where this is causing you a problem. <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's too funny. Hey, never that, said I was smart. That actually, <laughs> in a roundabout way, that's a fun fact. We just explored a fun fact about brain freezes. Yeah, we learned a little yeah. bit. We learned that there is some controversy about the ar- arterial function of... Yeah, just like constriction of capillaries in your mouth. In the roof of your mouth. The roof of your mouth, sinuses that, uh, on the back. Oh, yeah. So, so that was great. I mean, those are some really interesting facts, some really cool mis- misconceptions. I think we can kind of boogie on towards the end of the episode now but uh it's been great having you on rachel it's yeah, been really you, informative rachel. really interesting to hear about your work oh thank you yeah so here's your chance uh you get the stage is there anything that you'd like anybody you'd like to shout out anything you'd like to to say um and, and also where can people find you uh, hi mom <laughs> just kidding <laughs> um uh, shout out to my supervisor steve who um is a great scientist and also just sort of like a very creative kind of person in that he pushes hard for us to find like not just images of robots but like let's find a robot Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) um which is not easy no i bet (laughs) probably not cheap either no no but it, it takes that kind of like commitment and ingenuity to come up with something like really interesting and really bizarre and he's like uh a very interesting um person yeah uh what was the last thing i was supposed to say uh where can people find you if they want to get in touch and talk to you about your work oh um i am on the culture and self website um we'll link to that on we'll our website to, whenever yeah. we put the episode out oh perfect sure. yeah. great so i'm associated with the culture and self lab at ubc um we do a lot of work some of it's about culture a lot of it's more about self right now but culture comes up quite a bit as well so anyone who's interested in those sorts of topics um please look me up and also take a look at all of the other great work that's going on in that lab. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can find me uh, in the lab and <laughs> sometimes, um, hopefully more often at the beach during the summer months. Awesome. <laughs> that's, that's great. I, I, and so we'll have, we'll put up all that information on the, on our website whenever we post your episode. Uh, so people can get in contact with you and your lab if, if, if they're interested in the work that you guys are doing. 
cool which i'm sure a lot of people will be um other than that i think that's it so we can uh wrap it up uh how do i do the sign off i don't usually do the sign off so I i'm interested i'm interested in doing one right you now. want to do it I'm, I'm really feeling uh it. you can guys can catch us on uh twitter or facebook on brain buzz podcast we'd love to hear your feedback on this episode or all of our episodes uh let us know what you guys are thinking you can catch us on did i say you can catch us on itunes and google play and uh Please subscribe to our podcast so that when we release new episodes every other Thursday that you will get the notification. You can just download it right away. Um, we appreciate any feedback. Give us a review. Give us a shout out. Tell your friends and family. We appreciate all that. We're, we want more people to be thinking critically and uh, thinking about science. So that's what we're here for. <laughs> um, so thanks again, Rachel, for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, wow, thanks, Rachel. It was a lot it was, of fun. It was yeah. great. I had a really good time. Yeah. Great, great. That was great. I did it. I did a sign off. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right, cool. So thanks, guys. And uh, we sign it off by saying cheers, right? Cheers. 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 The intro track is Everything Goes, performed by Poolside. The song and the title fit the themes and elements that we want to convey throughout our podcast.